on the one hand, you know, that's obviously if we're talking about like a crisis of humanity, that's not good. If we're talking about U.S. business, it's exceptional. I mean, you know, we're we're talking about a tremendous rise in in revenue for for the government as well as for the defense contractors, um, and the United States accounts for forty five percent of global arms sales. That's up from thirty percent a decade ago, uh, and it's more by far and away than any other country in the world. So we are without question the world's top arms supplier, um, and you're talking about globally a market that was two trillion. Over $2 trillion is how much was spent on defense last year, which, is, again, is also record high. That's the entire global defense budget right now. Everybody's spending, in total, about $200 trillion on defense. All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Angel Research Podcast again. I don't know what episode number this is. Um, it's 73. Episode 73. <laughs> I'm Jason Freert. Uh, you're your host, um, and I'm here with Jason Simpkins. Again, another Jason. Oh, yeah. This is the best Jason, though. Yeah, right? I am. Yeah, I am. yeah. Forget all those other Jasons. Um, cool. Well, I'm always excited for our chats, and um, I think since we last chat, there's no conflict in the world. No, everything really peace. settled down. <laughs> everything has really been smoothed yeah, over. Yeah, nothing peace. They said, look, there's never going to be any violence or wars ever again. And uh, all the defense companies are bankrupt. Um, no, but it's what? The exact opposite. Yeah, right? no, it's gotten a lot worse. Like, I mean, the last time I was on this podcast, I was actually talking to a friend of ours, Jeff Siegel. And so we were talking about back then it was, you know, is this – you know, basically conflict with Israel going to spill over. And he wasn't so sure at the time. And I remember I brought up that there had been a situation where at a U.S. Army base in the Middle East, you know, they'd been attacked by a drone. At that point, there had already been something like 50 attacks on U.S. assets in response to the Israeli response to the initial terrorist attack. And, um, you know, so they had flown this drone into a barracks and it was laid with explosives, but they didn't go off mercifully. And so, but I, I remember being like, imagine if it had, and we're sitting here talking about five to 10 dead U.S. service members who got killed in this terrorist attack. And then now we're at a point here in January where that literally just happened, except this time the bomb did go off and three U.S. service people were killed. Uh, and and now, that was in Jordan, right? Yeah, that was yeah. in Jordan. And now we're retaliating to that. And, you know, this whole cycle of retaliation, like I said, where it began with the initial uh, terrorist attack and then Israel responds. And then, you know, you have the Houthis in Yemen responding. And now we're responding to their response. And the retaliation is just piling on top of retaliations to the point now where, like, you know, Iran is, you know, like, well, we're going to retaliate against the U.S. retaliation against our proxy groups who are retaliating against Israel, who is retaliating against Hamas. And that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. It seems like pretty much every other day, World War Three is trending on Twitter. Yeah. And I guess at this point, it's like it's not even a big deal for that to. And and I mean, does that concern you at all? That like, because <laughs> well, it's it's one of the things like, oh yeah, World War Three. We've heard it all the time, and it's not actually going to happen. But it's like it, you know, it doesn't happen until it has. Or like we've discussed, we're basically kind of already in there. Sure. It's just unacknowledged. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of been the nature of internet discourse and social media discourse. I would say the same thing about uh, the Civil War, 
right? Like, for a long time, it was kind of something that got floated and it would be dismissed. It was like, oh, well, we all know the United States isn't really going to fight another civil war, no matter what Texas says or whatever, you know? But at this point, that phrase has come up and it's been thrown out so many different times, whether it was, you know, with the whole, like, election thing, you know, with Donald Trump or this latest thing with Texas, you know, where they had the flap with the Border Patrol and the Supreme Court issues a ruling and they go, well, you know what? We're not going to listen to you. You can come and enforce it. And, you know, I think Nikki Haley's out there being like, well, states have a right to secede. And it's like, you know, I haven't heard that, you know. But vote for me first. That's new, yeah, in like 200 years or so. It's like, I guess we've really kind of come a long way on this issue. But, you know, World War III, it's kind of, it's a similar thing. And I I think maybe what we're kind of realizing is that these things, they don't always happen so suddenly that you more or less backslide into them, that it's not always a bombing of Pearl Harbor, that, you know, that it starts, you know, with, you know, China menacing Taiwan or it goes with Russia, you know, invading Ukraine. It starts with a terrorist attack on Israel that leads to probably a disproportionate response on on their part that, you know, kind of verges on antagonistics for the rest of the region. And, you know, things just go tit for tat back and forth and escalate and escalate and escalate. And what we've seen and what you and I talked about in terms of it being a world war is uh, the, the kind of teams that have formed over time where you have the United States and its Western allies, which include Europe and Israel. And then you have this kind of what I talked about as being like, you know, borrowing the phrase from George W. Bush and the axis of evil, where his was North Korea, Iran, and Iraq. I think now it's more Russia, China, and Iran, where they're all helping each other out. And they're all, you know, trading technology, military technology, and helping each other skirt sanctions and doing everything they can to basically erode this Western-dominated U.S.-led order you know, and, and kind of try to have their way. And that's been kind of a soft power conflict now for the past two decades that right now, like I said, we see with Russia's militarism, uh, with Iran funding these proxy groups, with China getting increasingly aggressive in like the South China Sea and around Taiwan, that it's now gone from, it's escalated from being a soft power, diplomatic kind of, you know, back and forth of politics in like, you know, the halls of the UN to a very real shooting war, to a very real live war. And the escalation is obvious. It's, you know, palpable. And like we were just talking about in the Middle East, the way the conflict is spread outside of, you know, where it began between Israel and Gaza and expanded into places like Lebanon and Iraq where and Yemen, where these Iranian-backed proxies are, spilling over into the Red Sea where they're attacking shipping lanes and stuff like that. And now we're seeing it also in Europe where a lot of European powers are now warning that if Russia is able to, you know, and it has regained some footing in its war against Ukraine, its invasion of Ukraine. And as we all know, U.S. funding for Ukraine has dried up a little bit. So they don't have the same level of support. Things are kind of shifting in Russia's favor there. Uh, and they will really shift in Russia's favor should Donald Trump become president again. Uh, Europe is really concerned about, you know, what's next. If, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, a strategy of appeasement, except, you know, Putin would be today's Hitler in terms of what does he take next? If he's successful in locking down Ukraine, you have a whole host of former Soviet states in that Eastern European area from Moldova to like Latvia, Estonia, 
Uh, they're particularly Russia has never let go of Poland. I mean, they still go out and threaten Poland on a routine basis and tell them to watch their step and you're next. Literally, the former president of Russia who took over temporarily for Vladimir Putin, Dmitry Medvedev, has told Poland, you're next, buddy. Like, you better watch your step. We're coming for you. You know, they're very explicit about this stuff. And so there's a, a real concern, uh, certainly in NATO, that if you know Russia isn't stopped in Ukraine, that ultimately he's just going to consolidate that acquisition and keep moving forward. Yeah, and that's I mean that's basically the thesis for getting into this sector. I mean, you have been you know obviously following this sector for a really long time, but it's not necessarily like, hey, um, you know we think. China is going to invade Taiwan and the U.S. has to do. And so they're going to need these X number of missiles and this company provides it or whatever. So you invest. It's more of a overall like the human race is seem predestined to some sort of conflict, at least in the near future. And it doesn't seem to be going away. So, you you know, you need to be involved in in in, in the sector in some degree. Um, do you? <laughs> How much of like a military contractor, defense contractors stuff is coming from like overseas stuff? And how much of it is like the you know, you talked about the Texas, like I just see like all we hear is like, oh, we need, you know, to help Ukraine, we gotta send them this, and that's going to, you know, a contractor who's gonna yeah. buy XYZ versus like, hey, we need, you know, defense actually here on our actual shores. So there are, in, in terms of overseas sales, there's two different ways that that's done. One is foreign military sales, which is a program that's run through the State Department, and that's government-to-government transfer, which is to say if the United States has these missiles, that the U.S. military has these missiles, we will agree to sell them to another foreign government. Uh, that last year was $596 million dollars, uh, well, actually, just to Ukraine, the total for foreign military sales last year was $81 billion, and that was up about 50%, 55% from the year prior. So there's been a huge surge. It was like a bit, somewhere around a little north of $50 billion in foreign military sales before uh, the Ukraine invasion. Uh, now we're up over 80. Uh, and like I said, that money, a lot of it, uh, over $500 million is going to Ukraine, uh, it's also going to Israel. It's going to Taiwan. That yeah. stuff needs to be backfilled. Separate from that are direct commercial sales. And that's when a foreign country goes directly to a defense contractor like Lockheed Martin or General Dynamics, and they buy directly from them. And that's about $160 billion worth of sales last year, which I'm pretty sure was also um, a record high. So, that, the, And I'm assuming the State Department has to approve that it does yeah, yeah generally speaking, like they're not yeah. like russia's not gonna be like hey lockheed like let me get some stuff they're gonna be like no you can't sell that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no there's only so many things like you know there's certain technology the united states is going to want to safeguard yeah the the state department does have to green light uh foreign military sales regardless of whether or not they go through the foreign military sales program or whether or not they're direct uh purchases but like i mean to the point about europe uh in addition to ukraine last year poland 12 billion dollars for apache helicopters 10 billion dollars for high mars those are the high mob 
capability artillery rocket systems that were used in Ukraine. Uh, they've been really effective. They're like mid-range kind of missiles. Uh, and then uh, $1.2 billion for aerospace uh, radar defense. So that's Poland, Israel. Just this year already in this fiscal year, $150 million worth of 155-millimeter artillery shells, $107 million of anti-tank cartridges, and all that stuff, you know, like that adds up. And on the one hand, you know, that's obviously if we're talking about like a crisis of humanity, that's not good. If we're talking about U.S. business, it's exceptional. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about a tremendous rise in, in revenue for, for the government as well as for the defense contractors. Um, and the United States accounts for 45 percent of global arms sales. That's up from 30 percent a decade ago. Uh, and it's more by far and away than any other country in the world. So we are, without question, the world's top arms supplier. Um, and you're talking about globally a uh, market that was $2 trillion, over $2 trillion is how much was spent on defense last year, which, is, again, is also record high. That's the entire global defense budget right now. Everybody's spending, in total, about $200 trillion on defense. Jesus Christ. That's a, I mean, that dwarfs every other yeah by far it's yeah and you know that's like i said we're talking about that now and that's only kind of going up and people you can obviously consider u.s defense spending where we just saw an 886 billion dollar defense budget get finalized in december that was for the current fiscal year it's going to go up slightly it'll be capped at a probably about a one percent increase because the debt ceiling debate of last summer uh, ensured that. It capped federal spending at certain levels, so it's not going to rise quite as quickly. It's been going up about 3% a year over the past few years. That's going to come down to about a 1% increase. But then once that cap is basically removed, which it will be in the next Congress, the next presidency after these elections, you know, that's going to go away. And then no matter who the next president is, if it's still Biden or if it's still Trump, you know, that defense spending, it's going to go up. Uh, I would say it's probably going to go up more under Donald Trump because he's always really been a fan of defense spending. And he's also always been a big fan of foreign military sales, you know, maybe more than any other president. He he really actually had a lot of like foreign uh, like diplomatic personnel kind of acting as salespeople on behalf of defense. Well, companies. yeah, his thing was like. Uh, yeah, we're, if we're going to send this stuff, they're going to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I, no, mean, I mean, to his credit. Yeah. Like, if, you know, that was you know, a, a big initiative on his part. He was very comfortable, you know, dealing arms. And, you know, that's, like I said, that's that's not incongruent with the United States as a whole and government policy as a whole. Uh, I think, you know, I think what he did was kind of cut a lot of the bureaucracy uh, and maybe he probably had a few less qualms. I mean, he was a little bit more open to dealing with places like Saudi Arabia, whereas, like, I think past administrations would maybe want to see some concessions out of certain partners regarding one thing or another. Uh, you know, I think idealistically, you might say humanitarian rights, uh, more cynically, probably favorable oil prices. Uh, that kind of backdoor negotiation, that kind of stuff goes on, the kind of quid pro quo of like, yeah, we'll sell you $10 billion worth of arms, but hey, gas prices are pretty high and I'm trying to get reelected. Right. You know, all that kind of stuff plays into it. Um, but, you know, the, no matter what, it's on a trajectory uh, where things are escalating. And that ultimately, that's that can be good for, you know, not even so much the U.S. government, which obviously needs to generate revenue, but uh, U.S. workers. Because now what we're seeing is more of an onshoring, a rebuilding of America's, like, defense manufacturing capability, 
which is to say that as the Cold War ended, defense budgets, they at best stagnated and at worst declined, especially in Europe, where Europe shifted more towards a focus on social spending. They cut a lot of defense. They didn't perceive the Soviet Union as being such a threat for obvious reasons. Similarly, in the United States, there were a few spikes around, you know, the, the Gulf War, the first the first Gulf War, and then the second one. Uh but ultimately, things, they didn't really move so well, and there wasn't as much of a long-term commitment to buying, you know, weapons and ammunition and weapons platforms. So a lot of the manufacturing base shrunk. The defense contractors said, we can't count on you guys ordering this into the future, so we're going to have to discontinue production. Like a good example of that would be of Stinger missiles. We stopped making them. And then all of a sudden, Ukraine gets invaded. We start sending them over there. They can't get enough of them. And we go, well, they're out of production. We haven't been producing stingers in a decade. And so now we've got to re restart that up again. They had to go and bring people out of retirement. Yeah, it's not like they're offshoring <coughs> those to China. No, they just stopped. <laughs> That's all U.S. Like, you know, all of the national security thing keeps that like, look, if you're doing this, it's got to be – in the U.S., it's got to be U.S. jobs, it's got to be security clearances to work on these things and all that kind of thing. Right. So it, it becomes expensive. And so we have these, right now, there's a huge ammunition shortage. There's, an, there's a shortage of the 155 millimeter artillery. Shortage. Well, if they if they stop shooting at people, I think they could save, <laughs> save some ammunition. But I don't know if that's going to happen. Well, when your country's being invaded, you're yeah. going to want to keep shooting. I mean, you know, the alternative isn't great for, for Ukraine. Like... Uh, but, I, you know, again, I was talking about a lot about uh, RTX, formerly Raytheon, recently. They're building a new plant, a $33 million production facility in Arkansas. They're going to make Tamir and Skyhunter missiles. The Tamir missiles are the ones that go in Israel's Iron Dome. That's obviously been incredibly busy. Yeah. Uh, and then they're also – they also manufacture Tomahawk missiles and uh, Stormbreaker missiles. They got $345 million for Stormbreaker missiles, Sea Sparrow missiles for the Japanese and Chilean navies. A lot of these are, are ocean-to-land missiles or ocean-to-surface missiles. So they're, they're going to be important right now when we're looking at a situation where we do have rebels in you know Yemen firing at ships from the sea. The, these are the missiles that get fired back at them, basically, or the interceptors that are used to pick off these drones that are being flown at these, these vessels yeah in, i mean in the the, Red sea. It, it's crazy the drone the drone attacks i think from they're not very expensive for the mm -hmm. person doing the attack right they're using like dji drones exactly right? like they're not using these five million dollar drones they're just trying to strap and like send it send it in and if it gets knocked down they're like ah whatever we'll get another one you can acquire or build cheap drones and just tack some explosives on it and do a tremendous amount of damage and again that's something that ukraine had a lot of success with early on so with them, they had one week, they took out 64 heavy guns, 27 tanks, 55 trucks, 38 combat vehicles, and three pieces of radio equipment, all with drones. It was 205 Russian assets in a single week. Uh, one commander of the Ukrainian drone outfit, he said that with just $700,000 worth of equipment, they destroyed more than $80 million of Russian weaponry. So you can scale that up. I mean, if you, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on drones can destroy tens and millions of dollars worth of equipment. And we've seen it too where they've been able to basically neutralize Russia's Black Sea fleet. So Russia had to take its Black Sea fleet 
basically out of Crimea and move it further away from Ukraine because they were getting so many drone attacks that they couldn't sustain it there. They were losing vessels that were sitting at port in Crimea because Ukraine was either flying drones or they were using surface drones, little like basically remote control speedboats. They put a camera on it, packed some explosives on it, and they just send it right into a Russian vessel. Yeah. So how, how much is warfare changed with all this because it definitely seems like i mean they like iraq and afghanistan was this like an example we easily can send a drone and like bomb you know like the u.s military is very good at blowing up shit Mm -hmm. right sure um and if they need to attack actual country it but it seemed like this guerrilla style warfare is like you you nec- you can't necessarily just throw missiles at it. Yeah. So if you're, talking, I mean, I guess you can, right? You can Until and, everybody is just destroyed. You, know, you can and can't. It, it depends. If you're talking about, it depends on what your objectives are. It depends on you know what it is you're trying to achieve. So basically, if we're gonna go to war with say China or Russia, it's gonna take more than drones to get anything of value accomplished, to take out any kind of value, target of of any meaningful value. And you have seen that a bit in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, where, like I said, you have a shortage of artillery shells, because at the end of the day, what these two sides are doing is they've hunkered down. The lines have been drawn. Russia, in particular, just made a huge minefield. They just laid down pretty much for every like square mile of you know in, of occupied soil they have probably two landmines at least or not even mile like square feet they probably have two mines in every square foot of occupied ukrainian soil and then they're just firing artillery back and forth at each other so infantry can't really go anywhere all of that's being defended against and then they're just bombing each other with artillery and then russia has the added advantage of having an air force which ukrainian doesn't even they just got uh f-16 so they're going to start to get some semblance of air power but you know a lot of that like these missile attacks we're seeing on kiev and places like that those have generally been you know missile attacks uh either from jets or from you know ground launchers so if you're actually going to achieve, you know, invasion, if you're going to conquer and hold territory, you're going to need some heavy firepower to do it. Now, when you talk about asymmetrical warfare, when you talk about a rebel group or a Ukrainian resistance against a much larger, better equipped Russian adversary, that is when the drones become a bigger and bigger factor. Because like I said, we said they're able to use smaller, cheaper things to damage bigger, heavier equipment. So, like I said, if you're a rebel group in Yemen and you don't have the resources of the United States of America, you can still do damage, limited damage, but purposeful damage. And, you know, like I said, we saw you, you can attack a U.S. Army's barrack and injure or kill U.S. troops. You can send that kind of a message. You, you know, did, did you eliminate the base? No. But you at least damaged it. You made um, you forced America into a decision about how it wants to allocate its resources and how deeply it wants to get invested in this conflict. And then when we respond with our firepower, how effective truly is it against these guys if they're just hiding out in caves or in places that are kind of hard to get or hard to access, you know, even with all the money and technology that we have, we can still do targeted strikes. We just took out like uh, a militia leader in Iraq earlier this week. So there was a bit of a response there. 
it's just going to come slower. But that's where the drones right now are making a huge difference. It's in the asymmetrical warfare. It's, in, it's basically in the smaller forces, the guerrilla forces. They have an impact. They're being deployed in the future now. It's going to be an even bigger problem because you see the amount of leverage that it has. And we know that, like, so, like we said, China produces a lot of drones, certainly more than we do. They produce them much more cheaply, much more quickly than we do. Uh, they're able to do that, obviously, because they don't have the same cost of labor uh, or technology uh, that that we do. How do you think they're getting these drones? I mean, they're not, like, ordering on Amazon. Like, someone's buying them somewhere and, like, and bringing them into... It depends. So, Russia got a bunch from Iran by trading them gold bullion because, like, their ruble's pretty much effectively worthless. I did look that up. Um so it was it was a leaked document that was obtained. So Russia paid Iran 1.75 billion in gold bullion uh, for thousands of Shahi drones to attack Ukraine. All right, uh, it was basically 190 thousand each for 6,000 drones, which is kind of a lot. Uh, but so they're paying gold gold bullion. Uh, if you're not going to just like I said make them yourself, China is very adept at making them because they, they have like I said they have a cheaper labor pool. They have less restrictions. Obviously, uh, there's a you know not necessarily for the better in, in the case of bureaucracy, but less red tape. I mean they don't really care if people get hurt or injured or if you have to work 12 hours a day. You know there's all that kind of stuff going on in China. They have more access to a lot of the materials, the base materials, uh, you know through their mining industry, which again is not really regulated. So they can they can acquire stuff more cheaply with less regard for, you know, the human toll. They don't really care about that. Um, whereas in the United States, if you're going to get a drone from a major drone supplier like AeroVironment, it's going to cost at least $5,000. In China, it's probably going to cost about 2000 So they're able to get an advantage there. One answer for the United States is maybe 3D printing. There's an idea that we can start 3D printing drones or drone parts cheaply and quickly, and that might be an effective way to do it. They just started something called the Replicator Program, which is is basically a new from Star Trek. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, <laughs> but they the replicator for the Pentagon is they're basically talking to Silicon Valley and they're saying, you know, what can we do to reduce costs? Like, how can we streamline this? And like I said, a lot of it is is you know these companies just need the assurance that the orders will be there, and then they can build out capacity. That's been the big snag, like it was for defense contractors, and why we've been lagging a little bit in our own production of all kinds of munitions. Like I said, if you're going to build these things, you want to know that there's going to be a demand for them, not just right now, but down the road. So that's why like Raytheon's building a plant in Arkansas because it's confident now that these people it's hiring to operating, that the the cost it's you know putting in to build this factory, that they're going to recoup it, not you know tomorrow or the next day, but 10 years down the road. And that's why they got the lobbyists in Washington being like, no, you got to keep, you got to keep this going. You got to keep going. Well, I mean, it's good. Like I said, it's good for everybody when it's creating jobs in the country. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody in Arkansas is going to complain about a, a factory opening and creating another five hundred thousand jobs, paying people to, you know, make missiles that are being used to defend American interests across the globe. Like, I think that's a win-win-win for everybody. Well, except for 
the people getting blown yeah, up. Yeah, you know, they lose. <laughs> but they need to do the same things with drone production effectively. Like right now, like I said, it's rather costly uh, per unit to produce drones and ultimately more costly than the military would like to acquire them. So what they need to do is find a way to support American drone manufacturers and American technology companies that, you know, are spearheading this technology and basically help them establish the infrastructure, the factories, the, you know, the transport logistics that they need to, to set this operation up to streamline it and get it going. Uh, and, you know, they're working towards that. And so, you know, we'll see how that goes. But ultimately, you know, I think everybody's kind of looking at these conflicts right now and seeing the writing on the wall in terms of things like drone swarms and having to have not only, you know, your own offensive capabilities, but answers for them defensively, uh, and that you're going to have to figure out a way to negotiate these things. That this, this drone warfare, it's going to expand. And we've talked, in, you know, in the past about, you know, fighter jets being deployed with companion drones, uh, being able to deploy uh, basically a little buddy drone to fly ahead and scout enemy defenses, draw enemy fire, help with targeting, you know, ask, or, uh, target acquisition and all of these things so that there's less for the human pilot to do and that the environment is safer for them when they're flying in a contested area. Do you think someone who's maybe, I don't know, enter, entering the, the Air Force now, do you think there there's going to be any pilots in 10, 15 years? Like, is that like, yeah, I don't think it's going to transfer, you know, that quickly. I feel like these things, these kinds of tech shifts always take longer than we kind of expect them to, right. you know. You know, it's kind of like going back, like, in the 1990s. They're like, what are we going to have in the future? And everyone's like, flying cars. Still don't know? have flying cars. And it's like, we still don't have flying well, cars. Well, we have airplanes. Yeah, we have to <laughs> close enough. But, you know, it's going to take a while. And there's always going to be things that, you know, a manned fighter, you know, is maybe – more capable of or you want to trust them a little bit more with but ultimately you know it is going to go to obviously a, a pilotless air force i think i mean it, it's probably going to be you know 30 to 50 years or whatever before that whole thing really kind of evolves in that situation but the start right now with companion craft and unmanned companion craft is really the beginning of that shift and you know we're gonna we're gonna see that because i guess we've seen you know AI pilots are simply capable of doing things that humans cannot. They can fly faster. They can fly longer. Same thing with ships. You know, they have submarine hunting vessels that are fully autonomous because they don't have to come back to shore to drop, you know, soldiers off and move people in and out and, you know, stock up on provisions to go back out on sea, you know, get more food and water or whatever, anything like that. They can just stay out at sea for months on time or just indefinitely and just cruise around the oceans looking for subs and not have to worry about logistics supplies. That's that's the one of the biggest advantages of automation right now. I mean, to be able to send these kind of robot warriors out into zones and one, not worry about losing soldiers and, you know, risking the casualties, but not having to feed them, not having to supply them outside of, you know, whatever electricity or whatever they run on. So you can get them out there and it's just a, a cheaper kind of more efficient way to establish a bulkhead or, you know, lock down in, in a contested area to kind of send in, send in your robots first and then send in, send in yeah. people behind them. 
Yeah, we're definitely, I think, bullish on robots. Not in the mil- not everywhere. Not sure. just necessarily in the in the military. Is there? Um, I mean, there's some. Is there a growth sector within defense? Like a like a something that, you, you know what I mean? Or is it just the idea of there's these established, you know, defense contractors and they just eat up the, um, you know, or their subcontractors, some subcontractors yeah. for the big guys? Like so that's the thing. Yeah, I mean. The headlines and the big ones, they're all, uh, the main technology companies to like, you know, Lockheed Martin, uh, they're always going to have a lot of their own technology in-house. But also, all these big companies, they also, they do rely on smaller technological suppliers. Right. Uh, you know, and so that's, I, I always, those are the companies I really try to find for, for secret stock files. Um, yeah, I mean, you've had a couple of acquisitions in that space yeah um, we've had some good ones and I, like the one i was talking about only because i've already mentioned it and we got in and out and in and out but like last year we played c3 ai because mm-hmm. they're an ai company and they were doing logistics for the military uh specifically preventative maintenance for u.s fighter jets because they could collect a bunch of data and basically tell you what subsystems were going to fail i mean that's that's something that's extremely beneficial when you're trying to maintain a fighter jet that's worth a billion dollars um, and ensure that it's flight ready at a moment's notice when you really need it. Uh, we bought that in like I, it was actually we initially bought it in yeah 2022 I think in the summer 2022 we sold it in spring of 2023 for like 140 percent gain. It went back down under 20. We bought back in. It's still up now over 50% because it's still in the mid 20s and I always say that's a fine place like I think if you're going to get it if you you know you get it for less than $25 C3 AI is pretty good there. We had another AI company that's still going. Uh that's up 166% last I checked. Um that one's been in the portfolio for years because they're a huge AI play in the military. Uh that that stuff's out there. Same thing with drones. There are big drone companies. There are small drone companies. I think everybody's familiar with like Aerovironment as a drone company. That's a good one. That's had a good year. Uh, and then, like I said, there are smaller tech suppliers that we look at. Uh, I mean, I've recommended companies that do the uh, the basically the vision display, the micro display for the fighter helmet in the F thirty five. Uh, because that's a really cool kind of piece of AR. Like that kind of combines what we were talking about with drones in that if you're a pilot, it can put right in your face, right in your eyepiece, all the information that you need in terms of your speed and altitude and your direction and everything that you should be doing, as well as identify potential targets. When you look down, it actually enables to look through the bottom of the plane. It kind of really? gives pilots yeah, like an X-ray vision. So rather than like just have like a little window to look out of, they can effectively look through their plane and see if there's anything next to them or to the side or under them. And it helps with things like target acquisition, uh, identifying, you know, uh, friend or foe, you know, even that kind of stuff. Just cutting down on friend, foe, fire. or or UFO. Yeah, or yeah, or alien. Yeah, if the, if, if the eyepiece comes back and just says, "I don't know what that is," <laughs> then you got a real problem, you know. Like, but so there there are smaller tech suppliers that do a lot of work for some of the bigger giants. That they're they're going to outsource, you know, or they don't. Have, they have, a lot of them own patents. Uh, so that they're able to kind of monopolize a lot of this kind of more cutting-edge technology, and they are able to, to vend it to 
to larger companies or, or mid-cap companies. So like usually the smaller and mid-cap tech suppliers are the ones we try to focus on and see our stock files. Yeah, and you briefly mentioned, I think, in the Wealth Advisory Top 10 video about sort of taking advantage. You mentioned you, you bought C3 AI, kind of ran it up, sold it, and then bought again. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a particular sort of trading strategy for some of these? Like some of them, I guess, are just buy, hold, you hope for acquisition, growth, and sales. Is there like, you know, the the one you mentioned, I think, well, Boeing is a good example, right? They had all <laughs> yeah. these issues and they fall off. And if you're confident in that, you would buy them. Right. Like, so, or is it just like, hey, this is undervalued, we're jumping back in, or wait for the next terrorist attack? Yeah, I mean it's certainly kind of case by case. I was, I mean, I remember with Boeing, that was one, that was one of like years and years ago when I was initially putting together a portfolio of defense stocks. They were one of the companies I'd have into it because they're one of the big five. They're one of right. the traditional ones. They're a huge defense company. But the, I got burned the first time their plane started crashing. Like their first plane crash, whatever it was, like it was like 2018 or whatever. Yeah, the, like the, the first seven thirty seven yeah, like, max down. Thing. Yeah, where they, like, they just they were like. Yeah, they just crashed it. Yeah, two of them. Like, I think. Yeah, and then the second one went down. It was like, okay, well, it can't be with Boeing. And I never got into Boeing after that because right. I was like, this company can't be trusted anymore, which is insane because Boeing has been such a reliable company for so long. It's like got like a hundred and fifty year history. It's an incredibly old, traditional, like very trustworthy company. But then it, would, it all of a sudden it just fell apart, and now you've seen all the problems it's had this year. And it's yeah, like, just stayed the hell away blowing from off. That. Other companies, like I mentioned, RTX, they had a smaller problem. Uh, but I, I bought the dip on that one because they last year they they had a merger they took over uh, United Technologies which owned Pratt and Whitney which is a uh, commercial jet engine manufacturer and so they had a recall last year because they found out that 3,000 engines uh, needed to be inspected because there was some kind of like chemical issues like a chemical powder that was uh, apparently on some of these jet engines so they had to go and inspect them and it was this whole big thing and so the stock crashed down from like a hundred dollars to less than seventy dollars a share and I said buy that you want to buy that because you know you look at Raytheon or RTX. Like I said, they make a lot of the most important munitions in the world. Whether it's the Tamir missiles for the Iron Dome, the Patriot missile system, uh, you know some of the, like the Stinger. They make some of the most used musicians, uh, munitions, Tomahawk. So like they make all these missiles, and as I said, the missile demand is so high right now, and the production is so low. There's such a shortage right now of ammunition and globally, and there's so much we have to backfill. And you know they also they do a lot of other things too but it was like i think they're going to overcome this setback and they did so rtx now it's back over 90 dollars. they just had a really nice earnings report uh in the in the final year of the closing i do have it right here uh so their their sales were up 10 percent for the fourth quarter and three percent for the year their full year adjusted earnings per share were up six percent so they overcame you know, this setback with this product recall in their Pratt and Whitney division, and now they're back over $90 a share. So they're up like uh, probably more than 25% since October. And I'd say that there's probably another 10% or so left in that run because I think that stock's going to go back up over 100. I think 100 is probably a more fair value for it. So it's probably going to go up from like the low 90s to 100 by at least the end of the year, maybe even higher depending on how things go. Uh, another company right now like that that I've talked about is Northrop Grumman because they just had a setback because they're working on the next generation stealth bomber. And they had an issue come up in their last earnings report where they had to take a $1.5 billion charge because it was a contract they signed in 2015, but they used – the U.S. Air Force used 2010 pricing 
to basically set the value of what it was going to pay and what this plane ought to be worth. And so they came up with a value of something like over $500 million, like something close to like 500 to $550 billion. But in today's prices now, with everything that's gone up, they have a cost overrun. It's costing them actually more over $700 million per unit to make. So they're over budget on that. And so they're like, this first lot, we're going to have to sell at a loss because we already agreed to sell it to the Air Force at this price, you know, based on precedent when we signed the contract. You know, so they they tanked about like six and a half percent one day. I think they've already recouped that value. But I, like that was another one. I was like, you can you can pretty safely invest in Northrop Grumman still. That's not a systemic issue. You know, that's those issues like, <coughs> excuse me, there's, you know, whether it's a product recall or, you know, a cost overrun like that on a big project, they're going to have these missteps. But when you're talking about big defense contractors like that, that really is the time to buy them. Because you get in, and these are companies that will grow over the long term, and they also pay a lot of dividends. They pay good dividends. They pay, you know, they, they have a good history of raising dividends. So, you know, you can rely on them as you know, pretty much safe, reliable income plays for just set it and forget it for just years to come. So whenever you see kind of small stuff like that, I think it's always a great time to buy a name like Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman or, or RTX. But yeah, no, Boeing, I'd stay the hell away from because I don't even know what's going on over there. Like That's just a whole big mess. But, but those bigger companies are always pretty safe. Like I said, I've been recommending them for, I mean, years now, probably going back. I think I started really focusing on defense around like 2016, 2017. And, you know, those things have all div- you know, gone up triple digits and they've paid out dividends the whole way. And then, like you said, when you look at the direction the world's going in right now, it's kind of hard to see that regressing anytime soon. It seems like these, these spending, these defense levels, like uh, level defense spending that we're seeing now, it's hard not to see that persisting, uh, given that all we're dealing with, again, that $2 trillion in defense that's being spent globally, the $886 billion U.S. budget, the stuff that we now have to re, you know, backfill, having dispatched to Ukraine and to Israel and to other places, it, it's, it, that money's coming. Yeah, I mean, you've been saying it for years, and it keeps going up, and there's no reason to, to think that it's going to change. Um, all right, I think that is a is a good stopping point. We didn't get to any alien talk. But no, we didn't. Next time, there hasn't been any new news to report on that front <laughs> that I'm aware of. But no, we'll no, yeah, it's it, it. I think some big stuff's coming down. So we'll <laughs> come down in 2024. <laughs> we got to see. They got to show us. Uh, show us something. Um, so yeah, don't forget. Um, thanks for listening. Um, like, comment, and subscribe. Definitely comment about all the oh, stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Jay Money loves the comments. I'm here for it. Even if, you know what, even if it's negative. Even if you have a criticism, I'm open to it. I got thick yeah, skin. Yeah, dunk on them. You dunk know what? on them. Go ahead. You got something to say? <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll respond. I don't even care. I don't even care. <laughs> all right. That's it. Adios.